0: Hello, everybody, and here we are once again for the would you believe it 87th time coming across the airwaves talking to you with another one of our financial well being podcasts. My name's David Lloyd, uh, and I am, uh, well, I'm Chris's mate, really, which is how I got to get around to doing this podcast in the first place. But I'm an actor, I'm a writer, I'm a broadcaster, and I've been hosting this podcast or co hosting this podcast ever since it started along with the guy that wrote the book on which the podcast is based, the Financial Wellbeing book. And if you haven't read it yet, where have you been all your life? Buy it. It's a brilliant book. It's the bedrock of everything that we talk about. And that, of course, is Chris Bird. How are you today, Chris?
1: Good morning, David. Morning, Tom. I'm very good. I had a little accident um, yesterday (laughs) because I'm currently writing uh, the follow-up to the Financial Wellbeing book, title as yet not decided. And so I had a full day of it yesterday. My head was just really, really full. And I got my hair cut and then I thought I'd give my beard a little trim. So I took my beard trimmer outside and it uh, re- wasn't really contrary because my head was full of my thing and, and took off the guard and just accidentally cut my beard off.
0: <laughs> We're here to talk about financial well-being and we can't do that without the other very important member of this triumvirate, Tom Morris. How are you, Tommo? I'm
2: very good, thank you. Although I would like you to refer to me as Tom just broke 80, scored uh, 79 Rounder, par 72 golf course morris
1: please unbearable david unbearable he's been for well, the last two days
0: congratulations <laughs> that my top score ever is 83.
1: well, well and so I that don't, was a,
0: that was a net 57 i'll have you know <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> honestly oh, I've been been absolutely class. unbearable but listen listen uh he, it's fair play not many people in their life ever get to break 80 on a par 72 no that's well impressive fair, so fair play
0: so Tomo, yeah. when you're not being insufferably good at golf what do you do tell us about yourself
2: <laughs> i wish i was this good at golf all the time <laughs> I, I would be more happy doing it um what i'll what be doing so i as listeners should know already i am a director and financial planner over at ovation finance so that's been taken up understandably the majority of my time we're off the back of uh, our initiative for financial well-being conference that we had in bristol uh back in may so that was that was great fun meeting some uh old friends and new after obviously a couple of years of being locked away and only being able to see
0: see people virtually so that was really good fun uh, so yeah busy very busy good let's move on with the podcast otherwise people will be switching off in droves what's on
1: today's podcast chris So today we've got an interview with an ex-private lawyer turned philanthropy advisor, Stephanie Brobby. She's a very interesting lady. She's got some really interesting views and ideas about the role of charities and how we can get well-being from our giving. We're going to have a second episode on this, number 88, which is going to be giving lots and lots of tips about how to give to maximise well-being. So we thought we'd do a little two-part series, starting this off with this interview with Stephanie.
0: Looking forward to that very much. Before we come on to that, let's get the first of our two regular features out of the way. Uh, our first one is No Shizzle Sherlock, in which we listen to the words of wisdom from a financial or investment guru. I wonder whether this is indeed insightful and meaningful advice or whether it's as predictable as an England cricket team's top order collapse. Or that script's a bit dated now, Chris, after the recent (laughs) test match. (laughs) Vive la revolution! (laughs) So, Chris, what's today's questionable market mantra?
1: So today, David, we are going to take on the big one. We're going to
0: tackle Warren Buffett. Now, even I've heard of Warren Buffett. He's basically the most famous and successful investor of all time, I believe.
1: I think that's fair to say. His investment company, uh, what's it, Barclay Hathaway, is it, Tom? Is that right? Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway, thank you. Um, uh, is uh, His investment vehicle, and um, he has made a lot of people very rich over his time. He's quoted all the time by people and is generally kind of felt to be the wise old sage of investing whereas
0: Tomo, of course, is the wise young sage of investing. <laughs>
1: but I, think... I know, you, you could take
2: just the young bit, and that's boring right
0: now <laughs> as well. Anyway, sticking with Warren Buffett, I think it's time we put his wisdom to the ultimate test. What do you reckon, Tomo?
1: What's the quote we're going to ask Tomo's view on? So we're going to use this following quote. The stock market, says Warren Buffett, the stock market is a device to transfer money from the impatient to the patient.
0: OK, right. Slight amendment then to my previous comment. Tomo, could you first explain it to me, then tell me what you think of it?
2: I mean, this is dangerous territory, me trying to explain the great Warren Buffett.
1: Um like how I've set
2: you up here, Tomo? Yeah, thank you. And there are a, a lot of fans out there, so I don't want to disappoint. Um, what he's alluding to here is time is your friend when it comes to investing. It's about having the patience to ride out all the peaks and the troughs and the noise and the speculation that goes on with with certainly when it comes to share prices and actually buying into good, solid businesses and just waiting, waiting to see those profits come through because time is your friend when it comes to investing.
1: So that sounds like you're on Warren Buffett's side then. You're
2: not going to disagree with him? Nope. Oh. No, who am I to disagree with Warren Buffett? Sorry, Chris, you're not <laughs> going to find that from me.
1: Well, I, 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 your point about him having a lot of fans out there is very true. And of course, for a good reason, because he's not only a very good investor, but also his 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 advice usually is very sage and very calm and collected. Um, there is one little caveat to the Warren Buffett story, which isn't making any judgment. I just thought it was interesting. He's been a professional investor virtually all of his life. He's famously the story is that he bought his first investment when he was age 11 and he's now 91 years old. Um, but what isn't so well known is that his serious wealth only came later in life. In fact, 99.7 percent of his wealth was earned after his 52nd birthday which kind of proves his point in a way. You've got to be <laughs> patient. Um, it reminds me of another thing about money, which is it takes money to make money. So it took Buffett half his investing life to make enough money, which he would then use to make his vast wealth.
2: I, this this highlights, some people will be aware of this. I'll try, so apologies if I'm teaching you to suck eggs. Um, the idea of compound interest. And this is, I always try and use the analogy of a of a snowball. You know, when, when it snows, Rarely here, but you kind of roll up a ball of snow, and you're trying to make a snowman, and you roll it around the garden, and it slowly picks up more and more snow. Well, that's what investments do when it comes to things like dividends, which is profits that are shared. You get you get to receive those, and if you go and invest those dividends, all of a sudden you've got more shares of something, which then means you'll get more dividends in the future. And this rolling up of wealth, all of a sudden, somebody let's use a, a an example is: Imagine somebody's got 100 pounds in the in an investment, and they get a 5% return; they get five pounds back. If somebody's got a hundred thousand pounds in investments, they get five thousand pounds back. So all of a sudden, you're getting more of a percentage. And that's based on a 5% return, not guaranteed. Just a crude example, but it's this idea that the more wealth you have, the more potential investment growth you can have that you can then add on to your pot which you can then get more
1: investment growth and it just snowballs from there and just to save you the maths tomo when you then got 105 pounds and you get five percent you then get five pounds 25 yes well, quite Gives you 110 pound yeah, yeah. 25 and so another five yeah. percent gives you another and so, and that's the compounding and the exponential yeah. effect that you get from time yeah
0: so we've learned there, there is one way of making more money which is basically by having A lot to start with.
1: (laughs) Uh, Who was the EasyJet guy that I heard once said about him? He's an amazing bloke, a $100 billion fortune, and he only started off with $5 (laughs) But (laughs) but, but, (laughs) but, Sorry,
2: I must just add here, it does show the importance of the younger you can start with this, the more powerful this sort of thing is. Sorry, David.
0: No, it's all right. I know that that having, having established that having a lot of money can be quite a useful thing. I know that in this podcast and in the next one, we're going to go and talk about perhaps the best way that we can use that money in order to improve our financial well-being. But before, oh, sorry, Chris, you wanted to say well, something
1: just, else. Just perfect, perfect tee up for one final comment about Warren Buffett. And I think we've probably given away. We are actually fans of Warren Buffett. So he definitely passes our no-strival Sirlock test. One of the reasons we really love Warren Buffett is that he is committed that more than 99% of his wealth will go to philanthropy during his lifetime or on his death. So he's not a guy that's trying to make oodles of money and then keep it. He's willing to give most of it away.
0: Well, that's fantastic. But presumably, he'll still be left with a reasonably large It'll amount. He'll be all right. He'll yeah. be all right. <laughs> he'll all right. He will be alright he will be he will not struggle to get his round in down the pub. Right. Okay. Now, having talked about uh, how we can give money away, or started to talk about how we can give money away, let's now move on to the next one of our regular features about how we can be as miserable and tight and mean as possible <laughs> and not spend anything. And and that, of course, is our regular feature, Tight Ass Tomo, where Tom Morris will give us one of his legendary uh, tips about how we could not spend money. But before we move on to him, Chris, have you got anything for us
1: this week? Well, I do, actually. uh, This is a bit silly. I I think my role these days, it seems that Tombo's got all the sensible ones and I'm the one with the silly ones these days. There's a, I remember from my student days, a tried and tested way of making a few quid. And I was just thinking of this when I I was just preparing for this and I looked it up, clinical trials, right? Putting your body available to medical science. And I just wondered how that was, if that was still a thing. And there's a popular one called flu camp, probably fairly self-explanatory what that does. They, they give you flu and you can get a hundred pound a day and trials tend to last from between 11 to 14 days. Now, I'm not going to go and do this myself, I will be honest, but I think it's an interesting thought that um, students may, may, you know, be able to make a few quid from doing something that isn't too serious, I would suggest, getting the flu. Um, there were some much more serious ones, but I'm not going to repeat what they were. <laughs> Right, uh, so, Tombo,
0: what's yours? So, look, I've
1: been doing this an awful long time, and
2: quite frankly, I was sent some by our brilliant real producer, Tammy, who helps edit this podcast and she sent me some great tips so I'm just going to steal hers helps edit David did you hear that? helps edit she edits (laughs) she tells me what to do in these talks and then and then somehow appears really nicely in your airwaves so she had a couple of crackers actually um, but I'm going to save I'm going to save them for for future episodes here we go planning on getting married choose February the 29th as a date (laughs) then you only have to celebrate your anniversary every four
0: years (laughs) brilliant inspirational Tomo. you lead the way as ever which reminds me and we used to have a lot more in the podcast the little tips coming in from our uh, listeners we don't get so many of those these days so don't forget if you've got any suggestions any thoughts at finwellbeing on twitter let us know your thoughts and we're always happy to include them in the podcast
2: and we know you're out there because the numbers are still coming through and and are, are still really positive so thanks for the listeners because we know you have to put up with us Um, I'm getting getting about
1: a a thousand downloads in the first week of you. you Mm -hmm. Something around that order. Thank you for listening. Right.
0: okay. so now to our interview. Tell us a little bit more about this, please, Chris.
1: So I'll, I'll let Stephanie introduce herself properly, but she's the founder of the Good Ancestor Movement, which has at its heart what it calls responsible wealth stewardship. Responsible wealth stewardship. She's got some really radical and interesting ideas about how we get well-being from our giving and how philanthropy should fit into society. So let's have a listen. Too much out with Stephanie Brobby. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast.
3: It is a great pleasure, Chris.
1: We had a really interesting chat a few weeks ago, and it was about five minutes into the chat, I thought. I'd really like to get Stephanie onto the Financial Wellbeing podcast because the stuff you're doing is so in our space, it's so interesting. But why don't we start maybe with you just giving a little introduction to yourself of your time as a solicitor and how you ended up starting the Good Ancestor movement?
3: Sure. Well, we shall start at the very beginning. I am. Um, when I was 16, I uh, wanted to become a human rights lawyer. I subsequently studied law at university and ended up applying for a training contract and got a job training as a a trainee solicitor at a firm in the city. And I ended up qualifying into private client law or private wealth, um, as it's commonly known now. A long way from
1: human rights law, I would imagine.
3: Yes, a very long way from human rights and quite comical in a way, because I'd grown up in a very working class community. My parents were Ghanaian migrants and, um, was you know I didn't really overlap with I didn't really come into contact with a lot of private wealth and I didn't realize that this whole world and ecosystem around uh, you know that's dedicated to preserving and accumulating uh, wealth even existed so it was it was quite fascinating but I was really captivated by the uh, complexity of human relationships uh, and the, the relate and people's relationships to wealth and to their families and their relationship with them with themselves and and that was the thing that that really captivated me and it, it's a hugely kind of intellectually stimulating area of the law
1: so you were dealing with some pretty wealthy people then by any any standard
3: yeah i mean well it's, a, it's an interesting starting point an interesting question what do we think is wealthy what do we regard as wealthy and the the, the answer to that question will differ i suspect depending on where which geography you're in and
1: yeah i was know. just wondering if i mean if in this context wealthy i don't know 20 million of assets or more something really a really stark you know um kind of i'm just wondering what you learned mm. about the relationship between pe- wealthy people the relationship between their happiness and their money for really wealthy people
3: well this this is also interesting. As my former boss used to say, we're we're a broad church he would say. I worked for Goodman Derrick which was uh, a firm that was established by Lord Goodman and he had quite a, a, a variety of different clients from the arts and kind of landed families and you know it was a real mixture of people lots of entrepreneurs so we en- I ended up working with lots of different cli- clients sometimes the lower level would be you know a couple of million to upwards of 20, 20 million and and onwards but yeah just I suppose it just uh depended on on the day and you know what I was doing but what I did take away and I remember pretty early on in post-qualification as a solicitor realizing that money doesn't in and of itself, make you happy. And that was as a result of my experiences um, as a practitioner and beginning to see some of the problems that actually money caused for people and the emotional distress and discomfort and, you know, money being a source of tension, particularly among families. And, you know, perhaps if if someone had died or, you know, the, the great anxiety that I saw it caused people when contemplating... Uh, preparing their wills or doing some estate planning and anticipating leaving their loved ones behind so it was quite fascinating.
1: Yeah one of my favourite quotes about money is from George Michael who um, once said that having more money doesn't make you any more happy it just gives you different problems.
3: Well you know I think that's I think that's right I think there are of course there's a certain level of money where you're able to meet all your needs and expenses and you know put food on the table and make sure that you've got shelter and security and and then maybe a couple of holidays a year but there is a I think isn't there a statistic something around 60,000 pounds or 60,000 US dollars I'm not sure it was a hundred hundred
1: thousand dollars yeah
3: yeah yeah that once you earn above that in terms of income that there's this sort of plateau effects and you you're not necessarily any happier yeah so I always find that quite interesting.
1: So so you went from there and you started looking at the areas of philanthropy and wealth distribution. So tell us about your views on that area, because this is the bit I'm really interested in.
3: Mm. So philanthropy was very much my, yeah, the, the gateway into this broader work that I'm doing now with the Good Ancestor movement. Basically, when I qualified as a solicitor, I was looking for ways to... I guess retrospectively, I can say that I was looking to scratch my social justice itch (laughs) Um, and having, you know, originally started out as wanting to be a human rights lawyer. And, you know, I grew up in the sort of household where my mum booted me down to a a soup kitchen when I was about eight. And so she made sure that I was exposed to uh, suffering and the the idea that, you know, even though we were struggling ourselves, uh, that there was always someone worse off than we were. So I was always looking for ways to, to kind of support philanthropy, support different organisations that, that needed funding. And from, from my experience, of course, I can say that philanthropic funding, uh, philanthropic activity has the potential to do great good in the world and has funded some phenomenal things. You know, I I love going to the galleries in London and there's so many things that have been so many wonderful things about either the UK and and the capital in particular, and many of our cities that have been supported by philanthropy. But as I kind of spent more time as a private wealth lawyer and I went through this period of becoming more and more politicised around wealth inequality, I started to realise that actually philanthropy isn't the silver bullet, it's not going to save us. I started to see that many of the problems that philanthropy seeks to address um, in terms of social problems, environmental problems are actually caused by the way that our economy is designed and the, the manner in which we've all kind of agreed to be complicit with the way that our economy functions. And actually, philanthropy can, can go some way to alleviating um, some of those problems. But really, what it, what it ends up doing is treating the symptoms of underlying systemic and structural problems. And so we really need to shine a light on the economy, the system of economy and the system of governance that I guess has prevailed over the last century or so as we begin to sort of diagnose and unpick certain problems and to begin to build new structures and solutions to address those problems. Philanthropy is very much part of my story. I've received philanthropic funding, you know, in part to get started on the Good Ancestor movement, but I I I suppose I have quite specific views on how philanthropy can be used um, as part of the solution to to meeting some of or solving some of the world's most complex challenges at this time.
1: The, it's very pertinent that we speak today, Stephanie, because the world's richest man, who could choose to spend his money on absolutely anything, including ending world hunger by himself, I would imagine, has instead chosen to use it to buy Twitter. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I make no judgment on the guy himself because I don't know him, but it does seem to me that, that uh, the choices that we make of what to do with our money tend to be not necessarily what society would want us to do with our money. Is that a reasonable place to go?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting choice. I think, you know, I wonder what is driving, what's the motivation for that choice why would you choose to buy uh, you know a platform like twitter is it one imagines that there's this allure of being in control of one of the most powerful forms of communication that we've had that we've seen in the last um, hundred years you know But our our choices do have implications for society. And I think we've been in this, I suppose, laissez-faire sort of environment. It's you do you. Everybody can choose to live their life the way they want to. And of course, I believe that everyone (laughs) has got a right to live, to make the choices that they want to to make. But many of those choices have profound implications for society, arguably, (laughs) There are better uses for um, mm. someone with such a significant fortune.
1: I did uh, read a statistic a little while ago that the climate change and the potential 6 mass extinction of humanity from the planet, you know, fairly big stuff, that that could be ended with an amount of money that could be provided by three people, Bill Gates, Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos, and they would each still have £10 billion left at the end of it. And that just really brings into focus the craziness of the wealth inequality that we have in the world. So let's get into wealth distribution then, because I think this is really the sort of thing that you are, are all about with the Guns Ancestor Movement, isn't it?
3: That's right. You know, our mission is to uh, to support the, the the transition towards building a new economy that serves people and planet. We want to be able to, in the words of Kate Raworth, who wrote the fantastic book, don't our economics meet the needs of humanity within planetary boundaries but we need a new economic system for that uh, we need an, an economic system which is fundamentally regenerative and uh, distributive so that more people have um, access to more opportunities and resources and prosperity are shared more equitably across the globe I mean it's fascinating that statistic that you just mentioned um, which indicates that the kind of extreme wealth inequality oxfam released their their latest report i think it was at the beginning of the year it was january this year and um in the report there's a very powerful quote that says that um, e- extreme inequality is a form of economic violence hmm. and um you know that really made me kind of sit upright and you know yeah. i'm i've been doing this this work for a while now and reading around this and developing my own political analysis and thought. Uh, but it, it, it's just so powerful to think, well, yeah, this is we're inflicting violence on people through allowing uh, systems of oppression and inequity to perpetuate um, in the world when we have such terrifying challenges. So,
1: one of the things that I'm a great believer in, Stephanie, and, and, and this is for my own mental well being is. I find this stuff really, really interesting, but I can only take so much of it. (laughs) I can't do anything about that stuff. I mean, obviously I can. There's that lovely quote, I don't vote. What's the point? My vote doesn't make any difference, said 15 million people. (laughs) So, of course, we can make a difference, but I can't right now make a difference. So maybe you could talk about how people can make a difference with their own situations. And that kind of brings us into the work that you did with the Good Ancestor Movement.
3: Yeah, so the, the traditional model in terms of how we might do good with our wealth and for, there's a broad spectrum of wealth and there are people with lots of wealth. But there, are, there are people that fairly modest amounts and, you know, still give to charity and things. So what, the, the prevailing model is that we we create wealth and then we choose to distribute maybe to various charities. We engage in philanthropic activity um whereas the good Ancestor movement is really concerned with supporting people to uh, interrogate their broader economic participation
1: let's just, let's, just pause you there a second their uh, broader economic participation could you elaborate what you mean by that That's a great phrase
3: yeah so i mean i mean it's not don't f- the the focus is always on oh well i'm giving x amount to these excellent causes and that's that's great you know there's good stuff going on but actually what it was what's going on beneath the surface so the classic example i think is of of someone who's very passionate about climate change and the environment and biodiversity and that sort of thing and they're perhaps making grants to climate justice organizations or environmental charities and yet they have huge you know personal investment portfolio which is invested in extractive industries and fossil fuels and also in corporations that are perhaps operating in ways that they wouldn't really agree with really conflict with their values and so they're out of alignment for that reason we the good answers to movement is all about supporting people to kind of integrate their values across their entire the entirety of their wealth stewardship and to not just to focus on sort of the philanthropic piece but to actually look more holistically at what is it that my wealth is doing in the world what are the resources that have been entrusted to me doing in the world what are they fueling because they'll be doing something and obviously we live in a, a fairly broken system and it, it's hard to avoid <laughs> causing harm directly or indirectly but that's the question and that's the invitation for people to to really take a closer look at what what do I believe about the world what do I believe about the world um that I want to live in that I want my children or grandchildren to live in or my godchildren to live in and and what is my wealth doing in the world and and is it getting us closer to the world I want to live in
1: and how do you go about helping people through that reflection
3: it's uh it's a long process of a combination of uh deep listening um you know really allowing people to I think it's very easy for us to talk about values and the term values gets thrown around quite a lot. But what does what does that actually mean? What's important for me in the world is different to somebody else and, and may manifest itself in a different way. And so really trying to support people to, to talk about what they believe you know, about the world, about wealth, about society and justice and the world they want to live in and what matters to them. And then I suppose really helping them to, Think through what what's my wealth doing now in the world, and how does that align with my values? And am I at risk of breaching my values with it, it having regard to what my wealth is doing in the world? And that could be uh, somebody that's invested in very extractive industries, fossil fuels, other fairly problematic corporations, and really just helping them to get to a place where they're able to identify actually. You know what? These are these are my red lines. I'm not prepared to do this action or to to be invested in this particular way. Or to tax is a is a huge area with a lot of the people that we're working with. Some of them really believe in in tax justice. They believe that progressive tax reform is a critical part of creating a fairer society. But they're indirectly tied up in structures and other practices which mitigate their tax liabilities or you know they're even kind of indirectly involved in uh, tax avoidance or directly involved in tax avoidance without kind of realizing and so it's really helping them to bridge their beliefs with their actions and giving them the support that they need in order to get their objectives delivered.
1: To make it real to some of our listeners could you give Mm. some examples of the sort of things that people might change as a result of some of this process you take them through?
3: Yeah. Often people will come to us and they they don't want their wealth to grow, and, and they they might be happy for it to sort of stay, say the same, sort of broadly in line with inflation, or all the, they'll want to reduce it kind of dramatically over their lifetime. And so a typical strategy, and I I call these kind of regenerative wealth practices or regenerative wealth strategies because they're all about how do we help people to embody the regenerative economy that we need, an economy which serves ecological and social well-being in which the planetary resources are used time and time again um, to create shared prosperity. And so a typical example could be someone that's got a portfolio of investments that could be kind of ESG screened or could be more towards the impact side and actually decides "Well, I, I really want to make a tangible difference to communities that have been harmed and excluded from the mainstream economy um marginalized and and dispossessed and so actually i want to start eliminating my participation in traditional investment models and actually start investing directly into communities by for example uh, lending money at zero percent to a community land trust that can buy properties in urban areas or elsewhere and then lease them out to community-led housing groups and um, so housing cooperatives which you're probably quite familiar with being based in Bristol and um, where there's quite a lot of activity but it's those sorts of strategies which they might not implement immediately but it's it's getting them to a place where they feel confident in understanding how much they feel they need uh, or how much they feel is enough uh, but also how much they feel is too much and then helping them to figure out well, what's the most regenerative way for me personally to to redistribute some of this money back into communities.
1: And the interesting bit of that for me as a kind of financial planner and investment advisor for many years is the capital is still there, but you're not getting a return on your money because you don't need any more money. Exactly. Um, I'd rather like Troodos Bank have a a little shout out to them for their crowdfunding platform. I have a little bit of money in there, not a lot, but I I can invest in things like, for example, a local health food shop um, that's opening another branch. Mm. They want to raise a bit of money, and your money's tied up, you get 4%, I think, return, and then your capital back. I don't want to shoot the lights out, but I want to make sure that I'm going to get something back, hopefully hopefully, the capital back, but the money's doing good in the meantime. So that's the sort of stuff you're talking about, aren't you? Mm,
3: Exactly, because it's about they're recognising, well, if I don't want my money to grow, then I don't need to be invested in the traditional way, and therefore I'd much rather my money was... In the real economy, doing something good for the world, and I think, yes, yes, impact investing is on the rise, and there are what I suppose lots of advisors call sophisticated solutions for for impact. But actually, there's a real hunger to to actually participate in the real economy and to move away from kind of speculation and 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 to actually invest in something tangible that they can see, that they yeah. could, they know that a community or a group or, you know, even social movements are getting access to capital that they just ordinarily would not be able to access because yeah. the prevailing economic structures don't afford certain groups of people to have access to capital, at not at favourable rates anyway.
1: But it's not giving money away, it's not tax, it's not philanthropy, but it's regenerative investing, if that's... I can't say the word regenerative... <laughs> it's investing in a practical way rather than giving it away and getting his money. back. So look, Stephanie, I've always said, I've said for many years now, I would make a fabulous billionaire. <laughs> I think um, if we could arrange that, I would be really good at this stuff. I'd like the opportunity, that would be all right. Because there's so many things that you could do good with your money rather than buying Twitter or going into space or something. All the stuff that you could do, you must have so much fun talking to, to people about this kind of stuff. Is there any? It's only just it's just be a bit a bit of fun for bit. The is there anything that you, for somebody's done that you didn't expect that was perhaps a little bit unusual, a little bit off the grid?
3: Uh, something that I thought was quite charming and a, and a bit unusual, I suppose, was lending, giving some money to a community at a kind of zero percent so that they could acquire a woodland. I thought that was quite mm. quite nice. Um, oh yeah, yeah, a bit of woodland, a real rewilding. I think it was so. That's quite fun. But I think they'll be I've only been going. Uh, I think it's nearly eight months, but I'm sure there'll be some really fun stories coming out of of what people decide to do as they kind of redefine the boundaries of what investing looks like in the 21st century.
1: So, just to finish, thing could you perhaps just talk about how you help clients to identify those boundaries, um, what values they are talking about, and how they therefore they want to invest? How do you go about that?
3: Yeah, well, we kind of asked them a series of questions through a, a values assessment tool around just getting them to engage with um, maybe the stories that they grew up with around wealth, what they were told and getting them to, I guess, into that dreaming space <laughs> uh, where they're thinking about what, you know, what is the sort of world that I want to be part of building? What what would I hope for for my children and grandchildren? And that's uh, Roman Krasnarek, who wrote The Good Ancestor, who very kindly agreed to that, w- that we could use the Good Ancestor Movement in the, uh, the name of business, It has some lovely sort of visualisation exercises around this, which are very, very powerful indeed. And so getting people to kind of connect with that, how they would want to be remembered and what legacy actually means on a broader scale. So not, you know, going beyond your own family, uh, your own immediate family, and thinking about how future generations might remember your contribution to the earth. Um and then kind of getting them to step back into the present and having a look at their situation at the moment, whether it's whether they're, they're feeling like they've made the most out of various tax avoidance strategies that they want to either unravel or drop going forwards and re- redefining new boundaries with, with their advisors. So, for example, we've worked with someone recently who doesn't want to benefit from any kind of state resources, so won't claim tax relief on any philanthropic gifts, doesn't want to take a state pension, that kind of thing. So yeah, we, we try to sort of uh, help them transition from where they are at the moment to thinking about what could be possible and and walk through various scenarios in terms of what they could do with their wealth, where, they, where their wealth could find a new home, as it were, and kind of stress test it that way and um, see what possibilities kind of really appeal to them and, and put that into a bit of a strategy for them
1: well I wish you only the very best of luck with this project the Gund Ancestor Movement Stephanie I think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic and I really wish you the best of luck with it
3: thank you so much Chris
1: thanks for joining us
3: well, do you know what,
0: Chris? You've done many interviews over the years. Uh, they've all been good. You're a very good interviewer. I'd just like to put that on record. And Would and you? and I've enjoyed the interviewees to varying degrees. And I have to say, I I thought Stephanie was absolutely fantastic. And, and what she said, her broad philosophy, she didn't go into too much detail, but her broad philosophy really, really chimed with me. I think she addressed an issue and managed to express it in a way that, that, that put exactly into words what I believe, which is there is enough money in the world, and why is it that there are still so many poor people? And why can we not find a system that perhaps distributes it in a, in a more equitable way? She was at pains to point out that philanthropy isn't the silver bullet. It won't solve all of the problems. But what it does do, it, it treats the symptoms, but it doesn't address the underlying economic conditions. And as you correctly pointed out, Chris, if the three richest men in the world are in a position that they could end poverty and world hunger but it's not happening. Surely the system by which we all live our lives has to be wrong and I I loved some of the things that she was saying about building a new economy to support the needs of people and the planet spreading more money more equitably across the globe and I was very taken with the thing that she said which is extreme inequality is a form of economic violence and with the way that the world is going at the moment, obviously we've got the war in Ukraine, we've got the, the, the climate crisis, the real desperate, desperate situation of world poverty. We have to start thinking about doing things differently. And I'm not in any way advocating communism or a, a, you know, a, a world revolution down that line. But I think if we're gonna continue with a capitalist-based economy, we have to look at different ways of, of making sure that that money is spread
1: more fairly so i really liked what she had to say it sounds like you were announcing you're announcing your standing for bristol mayor or something <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen,
0: i would love to i would i just think that for me if there was anything that i could do to support the work that she is doing i would love to get involved because for uh, me that is absolutely spot on
1: and that that for me is the point here is that i think lots of us could could chime with what she was saying I think we could bring true with us she's doing something about it and what I really like is the fact that there are actually a lot of super wealthy people who want to give more tax you know there's a whole a list of 100 or so billionaires who have said please tax us more so if they actually have that attitude she is helping them do some self-reflection on what is responsible wealth I think it's just such a fascinating concept I think we're going to hear a lot more of it mm. What we will do is we'll put in the
2: show notes links to uh where you can find Stephanie and the work that she's doing. Um I got absolutely nothing to add on what David just said. I think he summed it up wonderfully. Uh, but yeah, great interview, I don't, Chris.
0: Mm, yeah. And, and and the one thing as well, I'm gonna float this is something we might want to perhaps discuss in a future podcast, actually, Chris, because it's just uh, it's just occurred to me. and uh, and that's the notion of a universal basic income. Blimey.
2: Okay, that's a big one to unpack,
0: Chris. That is a big one to unpack. Does that? How well does that fit in with financial wellbeing? I would argue that it does. But anyway, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll put that out there because that's something I believe quite strongly in,
1: actually. So I'll but, put that out there. Well, and, well, we
2: know we know which side of the fence you're on, so we'll try and make sure we come with a uh, with a reasoned debate on it. <laughs> but
1: do, you know, I, I will just say this about that kind of thing, and I don't know enough about that particular one to make too much of a comment on it. But some of the books that I have read. Um, the uh, reaction of people to being given some basic level of money is not what traditional think tanks think it will be. The practice is, the, the reality has been, uh, is that people work harder when you get their basic emergency level type, type funding covered.
0: Excellent. OK. All right. Well, that's food for thought for later on. Uh, but for certainly for now, thanks again, Chris. That was a really great interview. And thank you, Stephanie, for the work that you're doing. And the three of us will be back with you again very, very soon with another one of our Financial Well-Being podcasts.
3: If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast, and to purchase a copy of the Financial Well-Being book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at Finwellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think.